as our choir gets settled in. We all had a good Thanksgiving, I hope. I'd like to make a clarification about feasting and gluttony. <laughs> I was talking, talking to Mike about it. There's a difference between feasting and gluttony. Feasting, you do and it's over. Gluttony continues, right? So it's okay. You don't have to confess your sins for eating too much. On That's feasting. But if you're into gluttony, now you've got problems. That's going to be a, an issue. And we all have a little bit of that. We're Americans, right? We struggle. We've got too much to get our hands on. Um, Andy and Tiffany are uh, on vacation, so you guys remember them and they're in, in your prayer time. They haven't had a vacation. Andy's telling me they haven't had a vacation since they've been married. And I'm going, golly, okay. So we want this one to count here. We want him to enjoy it. And they, they need it. Great people need a, need a break, get filled up, love on each other. So y'all pray for them in that regard. Um, okay, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3 through 4. No, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 4, 7. Okay, so if you guys will find that, and when you find it, just go ahead and stand, and we'll read that. It's not a very long passage of Scripture, but when you're all standing, I'll know you're all there, and then we will read it together. Okay, 1 Corinthians 4, 21. I mean 3, yes. First, I'm not all here yet. Uh, part of me is still traveling somewhere. All of me is trying to catch up with me. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, 21. We're going to start there, down to 4, 7. So here we go. Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in, in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of a man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. All these things, brethren, I have in figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? Let's pray. Father, I would ask you this morning that your spirit would help us understand the word of the Lord and that you would set us free from ourselves and help us to receive the fullness of who Christ is so we trust you to help us with that this morning and we thank you for it in Jesus name we pray amen as you guys are seated I want to try to make sense of some of that passage of scripture as I read it in the King James it's difficult it's like what in the world is being said there it's a bunch of these and thous and other things that can make it hard for us to understand. I'm going to dive into a certain uh, part of this scripture, and this is what I'm after. What are the marks of the heart that has been radically changed by the grace of God? If we trust in Christ, what should our hearts be like? It's not simply a matter of morally virtuous behavior. It's quite possible to do all sorts of morally virtuous things when our hearts are filled with fear, with pride, 
or with a desire for power. We're talking about hearts that have changed at the root by the grace of God and what that looks like in real life. So I want to aim at a particular part of this passage here. Um, uh, uh, some things that are uh, mentioned several times, that's really what I'm going to look at. Verse 21, you'll see, let no man glory in men. So this is, uh, this is to boast, to glory in men is to boast. Okay, and then you got in uh, verse 6 down here, that no one of you be puffed up for one, for one against another. So that's, again, boasting. Um, or, or to take pride in, or to be inflated with self-importance. And, uh, and then in verse 7, it says it again, Why dost thou glory? This is that boasting again. What is that about? So Paul is saying here in this section of Scripture, he's saying no pride, no boasting. See, what we're after is this trait called humility that Christ had. Um, because we are his brethren. We're to follow in his footsteps. So if we're talking about humility and we're talking about pride or we're talking about all these different things, it brings up this, this uh, word, self-esteem, that we hear a lot about today. And all the uh, psychoanalysis and all the... All those, you know, we, we talk about it quite a bit. It can be quite a interesting subject. Here's something that I found out. Up until the 20th century, and this is still true of most cultures, so up until about the 20th century, uh, it was believed in the world that too high a view of the self was the cause of all evil. In other words, why there's so much crime, why are people abused, why are people cruel, why do, why do people do bad things, why do they do what they do that's evil. And traditionally, that answer was pride, or that Greek word hubris. The Greek word is, uh, means a too high view of yourself. Okay, now in the modern Western culture, we have developed an utterly opposite cultural consensus than what was previously believed before 1900 and still many of the cultures around the world still believe, believe that it's too high of you that's the problem we have come to believe that it's too low of you the basis of contemporary education the way we treat incarcerated prisoners the foundation of most modern legislation the starting point for modern counseling is the exact opposite of that traditional consensus. Our belief today, and it's deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem and because they have too, too low a view of themselves. You know, it's, it's insecurity and it's low self-esteem that would stem from that. People used to think it was because they had too high a view of themselves and had too much self-esteem. Now we say it's because we have too little self-esteem you know there was a movement uh, in the early 1900s that began to take root and it was it was uh, a lot of what we're dealing with today in, in the culture that the belief is that the problem is the environment not the person right if we just work on the environment if everybody got a fair shot if everybody got fair uh, if it was a fair game if we could even the playing field then people would be good be fine it's not the truth, but lots of people believe that. They think people are basically good. You just need to give them a fair shake. They need to be treated well. And people do need to be treated well, but it won't solve their ultimate problems, according to Scripture. The framers of the Constitution, this is something I figured out from learning or uh, teaching American history. All of the signers of the Declaration and all those who worked on the Constitution, our, our government that we, that we still have today, they didn't all believe the same, right? They weren't all, you know, flaming Christians. They weren't all there, uh, you know, as Christians. They were, they were just, they, they, but they agreed on one thing, all of them, whether they were deists or, or they were Christian or, or whatever it was that they were, 
they all agreed in this one thing, that there was sin in the, man, in the heart of man. And that because of that, they had to create a type of government that would check that. So it was all based on checks and balances and not giving any one person or group too much power because they realized that because of this problem, there's sin in the human heart. If people are given things, given too much, given too much power, especially in government because there's, there's seats of, a, of power there, that this is going to go sideways because, because of that sin in their heart. They're going to take advantage of it. And they knew that in and of themselves. Even some of the, you can look at some of the things they wrote about themselves, for instance. Uh, George Washington was offered by his soldiers after the Revolutionary War to be King George. They were trying to figure out, what do you do next? What's next? Now we just, we just beat these guys over here, you know, across the ocean. Now what are we going to do? We've got to figure this out. And they offered him, hey, why don't you be the next King George? And, of course, he was smart enough to say no to that. He's like, no, because I know me. I know what I, I'll turn into what we just got rid of. See, they were smart enough to see that in human history, that that always occurs. And so what they constructed was a form of government that would keep it in play as long as people understood some of these foundational things. And those are some of the things we're not knowing these days. However, so what is it? Let's, let me... Kind of got off on a rabbit trail there. First Corinthians gives us an approach to self-regard that is totally different from both the traditional and the modern or postmodern contemporary culture. So, in other words, First Corinthians gives us it's not about high, too high of you, and it's not about too low of you. It's something other than both. So that's what we'll look at. So three things that Paul shows us in this passage. One. The natural condition of the human ego. Okay? Now, when I say human ego, we could say biblically that's, that's the flesh, but the ego is just a, a person's sense of self or sense of self-importance, you know? Just as that we all have it. It's just one of those terms that's kind of uh, been understood by the culture. So, he first shows us the natural condition of the human ego. Secondly, he shows us the transformed sense of self which Paul had discovered and which can be brought about through the gospel, meaning Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And then thirdly, how to get that transformed sense of self. So there's three things we're going to look at. So first of all, let's look at the natural condition of the human ego. Okay, in, in, in verse 6, 4-6, Paul urges the Corinthians to have no more pride in one person over another. Now, this is nothing new because we know pride's inappropriate, but let's dig a little bit deeper as to what he was saying. Because he doesn't use the word, the Greek word for pride, hubris, which is typically used. He uses another word, and we need to take a look at it. It's the word physiou. Okay? Now, it doesn't matter that it's physiou, just know that it's different than hubris, so it makes us think about why did he use that word instead of this other word okay this is an unusual word it's used only six times in the new testament and only by paul some believe it's a, a special theme of paul's and i believe they would probably be right but uh, just to, to know paul's story because you know paul talked about this he talked about all the all of his accolades all the things that he'd done the school he'd been to all the that he was a hebrew of hebrews you know he did it all right i mean he worked overtime to check off everything culturally that was superior and he did it and he and he talked about boasting in it right i think that's why he uses this word here and why others would think that it was a special theme of his because he had been burned in this area and he was offering to other people don't do that let me tell you something better so he's saying something he's wanting to teach something about our human ego our sense of self. So physiou literally means to be overinflated, swollen, distended beyond its proper size. May have described us on Thursday evening. Right? 
can be painful when you overeat, right? So this, bring, this, this word brings to mind a rather painful image of an organ in the human body, an organ that is distended because so much air or food has been pumped or forked into it. So much, in fact, that it's overinflated, it's ready to burst. It's swollen, inflamed, and extended past its proper size. Now you know why it's important that we know it was physiou for pride as opposed to hubris. He's saying something very specific here. Okay, this, this Paul says is the condition of the natural human ego. Okay, so it's a metaphor. The metaphor is that you're you're inflamed, you're distended, you're overinflated, and it's like an organ of the body that's speaking to you, right? You know, when you've eaten too much and you're, you can't breathe, your lungs don't have enough room, and you're, you know, your body's speaking to you, and you're like, oh, I'm stuffed. He's using that as a metaphor to say this is the human ego's condition, okay? So follow me here. So this word's image brings up four things that I want to go over about our natural state, okay, our carnal state. Again, ego could be said that it's, uh, you know, it's the flesh or, you know, some of these things, but ego, we're going to use, use ego here. First of all, first of the four, the ego is empty, okay? The word points to the fact that there is emptiness at the center of, of the human ego, the ego that is puffed up and overinflated has nothing at its center. It's empty. Now this brings me back to last week. You know, we talked about that that we all have this the, the word koila. There, it's the it's the womb. It's the innermost being. It's in here, and it's like a well. I use the term as a as a well. We were created with it. We, it was it's the portion of us that connects perfectly to God, the one who made us. He made us for love, and he, and we are fit for Him, and we fit. We're supposed to be connected, so we we have this well that's to be connected with God. But we lost it in the fall. It got we got disconnected from it. But we still have a well. Remember last week I was talking about how we were created for ultimate pleasure out of this world pleasure. And since we've been cut off from that ultimate pleasure, we're all running around trying to get enough pleasure to fill in this spot that we have. We all have. We all feel it. We all know it. So it's empty, this part of us. This ego, it's empty. We got disconnected, and now we got to fill that space with something. And what we end up doing is filling it up with vain things emptiness empty things and of course as we often are reminded if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for god it's going to be too small it's going to rattle around in there right just doesn't fit so that leaves us scurrying about secondly first it's empty secondly it's painful a distended an overinflated ego is painful. It hurts. Have you ever thought about the fact that you don't notice your body until something's wrong with it? You know, it's one of those thankless things until something's wrong. You know, we never walk around and say, my toes feel fantastic this morning. <laughs> you know, you just don't think about them. And you don't think about how brilliantly your elbow's been working for you all day, right? Unless it stops working for you. And then you're like, my stinking elbow is not working. So here's the, here's the issue. The, e the ego hurts constantly. It's hurting. And we feel it all the time. We live with it running wide open in pain that we don't even really understand or acknowledge what it's saying to us and then what we're doing about it. It's always at work. 
It's always drawing attention to itself. It's in pain. Something's really, really, really wrong. We think, uh, how do I look? How am I treated? My feelings are hurt. Right? These are all things that we think on a daily basis, continually, sometimes obsessively. Our feelings are fine. It's the ego that hurts. Right? That's what we're really dialing in into here. Just try to get through the day without feeling snubbed or ignored or disturbed or feeling stupid or getting down on yourself. Good luck with that. It's always working, isn't it? Always. Man, what a pain. There's something terribly wrong with it. There's something wrong with my sense of self. It never stays happy for long, if at all, right? It's always drawing attention to itself. So here we go. It's empty, and it's bloated with emptiness, vanity. It's in pain because of that. And thirdly, it's very busy. Oh, it's working overtime. It's wearing us out. That little ego is on a treadmill. He's got it pumped up to 12. And he's I mean, he, we're just going all the time, right? We've got to take care of this. We're in pain. Remember, we're in pain. We're busy trying to fill the emptiness. Okay, we'll go back to verse 6 here. Because he's making a statement here. He's saying that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. See, Paul doesn't say here that no one of you be puffed up. That's, that would be fine if he did say that, but he added to it. Do not be puffed up for one against another is what he says. He's saying don't take pride in someone against someone else. You know how we do this? We, we, listen, we're busy. We're looking for something to make us feel better, and we like to attach ourselves to somebody else or something else. And because we have attached ourselves to someone who's doing well or something that we something bigger than us, greater than us, we can try to fill that hole with it because it's bigger than us, and we know we need something. Have y'all ever met somebody that takes pride in their football team? Or their school? Or their church? I mean, you name it. That's, that's the very essence of what it means to have a normal human ego. This is, this is what in 1 Corinthians 3, earlier on in that chapter, the Apostle Paul is talking with Corinthians and saying, are you not acting like mere men? This is what mere men do. Now that's a strange statement because he's, he's offering that we don't have to act like mere men. He's trying to show you here's what the human ego does naturally, but he also goes on to say a little later in the, in the chapter, I don't do that. I don't play by those rules. That's not the game that I play. I have trans The Lord has done something in me for me and to me that's lifted me up. I don't play that game anymore. Here, come, let me show you. Let me show you what to do is what Paul's trying to point out. The way the human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort is by comparing itself to other people. Isn't that right? All the time it's doing that. That's, that's the game that it plays, and that's what he's pointing to here. Stop comparing See, he's saying, some are saying, oh, I like Paul. Others are saying, hey, well, I like Apollos. You know, some people are saying, I like Tennessee. Some people are saying, oh, I like Alabama. Right? And somehow we get something from that, hitching ourselves to something else. And then we need them to do well. Right? That's why I unhitched myself from Tennessee. I still love Tennessee, I just don't let it affect my mood any longer. Because it used to. I was high as a kite, and I was low as it could get. I was high as a kite. 
low as I could get. Like, this is not fun, but still people do it, don't they? I mean, there's some hilarious, you can get on YouTube and look at some people that are totally into college football and their teams, and, and they have a YouTube channel about it. And that's all that they talk about. And <laughs> some of them are hilarious because it'll show live feeds of them watching a game and what they do when a certain thing happens. And I was watching this one guy who was a Georgia fan, and he had this huge 64-inch uh, you know, flat screen, beautiful TV. And the reason I was watching it is because it was the game a few years back where UT won in like the last second. You know, it was a last second throw in, in the end zone and Tennessee won and they weren't supposed to win. And this guy's a Georgia fan and he's watching it. And he destroyed his TV because of that play. I mean, just, un, you know, he just is. And then it was, I, as a Tennessee fan, I thought it was hilarious because he destroyed his TV and then you see him bow in front of it just like this. And he lays there for a long time. And I was like, I remember being that crazy about that stuff. But see, it's important. That's, that means it's attached to something really important. And we've got it hitched up. We've got us, ourselves hitched up. And Paul is saying in this, in this passage right here, don't do that. That is not going to work for you in life. It's not going to work. Don't do it. Stop comparing yourself. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this. He says, <clears throat> pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They, they're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about, right? It's always this little game that we play with one another, this sliding scale. I used to be ugly in the seventh grade, and then I got really good-looking. <laughs> right? Isn't that that high school thing, that whole high school game? You can play that whole high school game and never get out of it. You just enter into college, find out, I've got to do this all over again. We judge constantly, and we are attracted to be a part of things that make us feel good about ourselves. You know, we, I, I use sports a lot because that was kind of my world, but when I went to VI, I worked down in the little workout area and whatnot, and I can't remember the name of the thing, but anyway, <coughs> several of the other baseball players were down there too, and so we spent, and then a lot of guys would come that lived around here would come, and we'd play ping pong and hang out down there and so <clears throat> we got to getting serious into ping pong you know that competitive kind of nature got in there and we were all we had our little pecking order you know the, the one guy was always winning and then everybody else was gunning for him and I was like number number two I, 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 I beat I beat the number one guy just a couple times but we had our little thing going on there and we did it all summer until the uh the Portuguese tennis players got on campus. And they come down there and they're checking everything out and they go, oh, ping pong table. They start playing ping, ping pong with each other. And they're doing it like what you see on TV, like back here. And us, you know, us guys from around here were just standing back going. We, did, we didn't play again. See, we thought we were good. Turns out we weren't good at all. <laughs> right? And if you really open yourself up to the truth, that's the way it is in life, you know? We all think we're good until we run into somebody that's good. And then we go, well, I'm not so good. Right? It's a trick. It doesn't work. It never does pan out. <clears throat> So we reap the wind and we swallow it and we got nothing. By comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than, than others, we are boasting, trying to recommend ourselves, trying to create a self-esteem resume because we're desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is so busy. 
so busy all the time. So the ego here, the, the natural man, is he's empty. He's in pain. He's busy. But here's the fourth thing. The ego is fragile. Oh, my goodness, it's so fr fragile. Pride will tell you, hey, compared to everyone else, you're superior. Or pride will tell you, hey, you're inferior, and you should be better. Hate yourself for your fall from how great you should be. I mean, one way, either way you go, it's not a good message. See, you're either inflated or you're deflated. It's all the same. You're either puffed up or you're deflated. But once you're deflated, you get pumped back up again. Maybe you find your, your niche, your groove. You get pumped back up in your little tiny world here in your little small kingdom. Hey, I'm king of the hill around here. Oh, really? Really? Are you king of the hill? Or are you just temporarily puffed up again? And as fragile as you are, you may be deflated here in just a moment or two. It's all the same. Makes the ego fragile. So it's empty, it's painful, it's busy, and it's fragile. Y'all remember uh, Madonna? She's like something of the past. There's a quote from Madonna I'm going to share just because it's, she's pretty self-aware. She's on target with some things. It, it kind of speaks to this inflate-deflate thing. She said this in a, I think it was Vogue or one of those magazines, in an interview she says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. It's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. I guess it never will. Isn't that the way it works? The well within our soul, it's like the ego is the mouth of this thing. It's just... We run out of air at some point. Nothing else to suck in, and you never sucked in what you really wanted. You just never do get there. It's never enough. See, that's exactly what Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? It's just vanity. It's all of it. I've got all this stuff. I've got all, every, all the money and then all the imagination I can to get whatever it is that I need that would, that would fill this thing, and nothing does. That's the whole end of the book. He says, just fear God. So this is what acting like mere men is, the human ego as normal. So how does the gospel work? Let's look at verse 3 and 4. Or wait a second. This is how the gospel has transformed Paul's sense of self-worth and his identity. So we're going to look at what Paul's done about it. We'll get to verse 3 and 4. In verse 1 and 2, Paul reminds them that he is a minister and he does have a job to do. But with regard to that role, he comes, he cares very little if he's judged by them or any human court. That's what he makes that statement. Verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. Now that word judge used there means verdict. Okay, so he's talking about we're getting a verdict here. That's what he's looking for, this judgment. What's the verdict? In other words, Paul's saying he doesn't come to the Corinthians and say, hey, tell me what you think. Awesome or unawesome or indifferent? So I'll know how to feel about me. He's saying, I don't do that. But then he says something else, too. He says he doesn't even judge himself. Now, that's the trick. So this judge, this judge issue in verse 3, it's a verdict. It's the same thing that Madonna craved, right? 
She's just putting all of her work out for the world to decide. Am I awesome? Am I worthwhile? Am I worthy? It's that elusive verdict or stamp of approval. Paul says he doesn't look to the Corinthians for that or to any human court for the verdict that for that verdict that he is valuable, that he is loved. I don't care what anybody thinks. In the modern world, we would say just please yourself. Have your own standards. Forget what everyone else thinks, right? That's what we talk about today. We, we talk about, hey, forget about what they say. You just, you be okay with you. You create your standards and you live by those standards and those standards will be fine. You know, it's re repeat after me. I remember Stuart Smalley. Probably not. You look in the mirror and you say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And you just say that enough until you feel good about you, right? Doggone it, people do like me. You just tell yourself something to make yourself feel better. And hey, that's better than telling yourself bad things. I'll give you that. But it never does unhitch you from the problem that you've got. And the truth is that, man, it's not easy to get unhitched from what other people think about you, is it? It's a work of God is what it is. If you'll stay aimed at the right one, if you'll be aware of what it is that's going on, which is what Paul's trying to help us out here. He's saying, look, I got over that. Christ Jesus got me over it. He got me above it. And it's better. Oh, man, it's better. It's so much better. So let's take a look at it a little bit, a little bit more. So does it work? Does it work? Are, are your affirmations working for you? Because that's a big thing in the world today. Get your affirmations out and just state them plainly and say them strong and look at yourself. Believe in yourself. You're good. You can do it. You know, sometimes we just protest us too loudly. You know, when somebody's just saying it, they're just saying it louder. And they say it louder and louder and louder. I'm, not, I'm like, I'm not sure you believe that. Thou protest us too loudly. That's what Shakespeare says. Sometimes you can tell that. It's just, there's a little too much going on here. You're trying to convince me of something or what? Right? Paul goes in another direction. He says, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think either. See, that's the big difference right there. This isn't a, a court where men decide things. There's something greater, the secret, his secret. Paul's secret is to fill his ego with God. That's how he gets peace and satisfaction, right? Right? Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, but he does not connect that to himself and his identity. His sins and his identity are not connected. He refuses to play that game. He does not see a sin and let it destroy his sense of identity. Y'all ever done that? You feel like you feel good about yourself? You've done all your quiet times in the week. You're really working on it. You're feeling good. I'm confident. And then you get into it, you have a bad week. I, got, I, I didn't have my quiet time, I messed up. I, hey, I battled this just this week because I was out of town. I got out of, discombobulated with my routine. I'm a routine guy, you know. Get discombobulated, didn't get to spend the time with the Lord that I need. And I get up this morning and I'm like, this is going to be terrible. I just don't feel confident. What is that? It's what I'm talking about right here. We're so connected to our behavior patterns and what it is that we did good or what it is that we did bad. And it affects us, right? We have to be reminded what Christ Jesus did for us. He paid the penalty. We are accepted. It's not based on my performance. It's based on his love. When I get attached to that love, that, that love begins to transform. It begins to set me free. It begins to fill me up. My ego stops chattering all the time. I don't have to judge everybody. I just get to love people. 
And as a pastor, I don't have to just be with people to try to fix them. I can just be with them. Right? I can't fix anybody, but I can be with you. I can treat you in such a way that you feel the things that I feel at times when I'm, get, when I'm really getting it from the Lord, but I'm a human too. Sometimes I don't feel it. I might treat you bad even. Have to forgive me. Man, we need God's love, don't we? So, I didn't finish that. Paul does not see a sin and let it destroy his sense of identity. He does not make a connection. Neither does he see an accomplishment and congratulate himself. See, he's, he's, he's detached from both. He sees all kinds of sins. He tells us that. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. So he's got plenty of sins that he sees. There's no lack of sinning that he realizes he's taking part in, whether omission or commission. That's not the point. But he sees all kinds of accomplishments too. He's a very accomplished guy. I mean, we look at the Apostle Paul is probably one of the, you know, top ten most fluent, influential humans that ever walked the planet, right? Tons of accomplishments that he refuses to connect them with himself or his identity either. See, he's not, he's not judging himself. He's not looking at his track record the way that he used to. He's no longer inflating and deflating, right? It's just Christ. Judging self and judging others is a trap. It leads us up and down, up or down, unstable. Paul's talking about having humility within his life. This is new territory for the human being. Paul is saying that he has reached a place where his ego draws no more attention to itself than any other part of his body. He has reached a place where he's not thinking about himself anymore. When he does something wrong or does something good, he does not connect it to himself anymore. C.S. Lewis makes a point in Mere Christianity. He says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel hum humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of self or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Now, how is that possible? Because you're being filled with something transcendent. It sets you free from that back and forth. True gospel humility means an ego that is not puffed up, but is filled. See, we the well has found the source that it was made for, and it's been filled with it. We're at peace. We found what we've been looking for. It, it's greater than us. It, it created us. It's God. It's God as love. Paul refuses to play the self-esteem game. It's not high. It's not low. It's just Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, he sticks with the need, the necessary what, what we had to have Jesus Christ do for this and then for us and then what he did. We had to die and we and all of our sins died in him and he paid for all of them. And then we had to have resurrection life. It's a transcendent life. It's a greater than us life. And it sets us free from being mere humans and playing this game. Here's the little test here. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly bad by criticism. Now, here's where you get to check yourself because you're going to be criticized and people are going to say things about you. you got to check, how's this making me feel? Am I overly bothered by this? Because you have to check with this often because it happens often and you need to be understanding, hey, I'm getting a little too upset about this. Why am I so upset about this? What's, go what's going on? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Jesus paid, paid for it all. I don't have to play this game anymore. I, am I, I have God's love. I don't have to do this any longer. See, so you're looking for these checks. It, would, it wouldn't devastate you if you got criticism. It wouldn't keep you up all night. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think and on other people's opinions. The world tells the person who is thin-skinned and devastated by criticism to deal with it by saying 
Who cares what they think? Now, that's what the world says to do. When somebody's criticizing, the world tells them, hey, just, just forget it. Who cares what they think? And then you've got people who are either devastated by criticism or they're not moved at all by it because they don't listen to it. They don't listen to it or learn from it because they don't care about the people giving it to them. They don't care about people. They know who they are and what they think. In other words, the world's solution to low self-esteem is pride. Either down or just up. But that's no solution. Both low self-esteem and pride are horrible nuisances to our own future and everyone around us. The Bible teaches us in Matthew 20, 22, 37, 38, love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, the issue is that you're receiving an unconditional love. It's not a performance-based love. God's the only one that gives it. He's the only one that has it. And when we receive it through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's really touching us, and it's detaching us from the up and down, the up and down, the up and down, then we're able to love the way that he loves, and we're free. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts fear out. So true humility comes from being perfectly loved. I'm now filled. I'm not puffed up. I'm just filled. My well has a spring of life-giving water that's springing forth. Now I get to grow because I have a fuel to run from. I've received the gift of life, and now I get to live life and become like Christ who saved me. Because, hey, guys, you know we got some problems, right? There's some things to work on, right? Okay, so the transformed view of self, and I'm wrapping up here. Verse 4 talks about being justified. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. So in other words, there has been a judgment rendered, and Paul's saying that I was justified in that rendering. And it's over. It was a court case. It's finished. It's done. The gavel has fallen, and I'm justified. It, now, this is the same word, justified, that he uses all through the book of Romans and Galatians. You know, we're all looking for that final answer, that ultimate verdict that we are loved, valued, and important. But the ways of the world are, you better work for it. What have you done for me lately? Right? God says, here it is, all, all that I am. I've paid for all of your sins and all of your failures. Now I'm here to give you a fuel to live by that's satisfying, but that also causes you to work hard you know paul was a hard worker and he said and i worked hard with the energy of the holy spirit given to me to give to give to give so that he could be one of those top 10 influential humans on the planet that's what we're looking for connecting and then wanting we're, we're drawn to run with the lord and what he's doing to transform the world and to bless people it must come from a transcendent place though it cannot come from us this verdict that we're loved or we're valued it's got to come from beyond paul says it is the lord who judges me it's only his opinion that counts and we're all working to get a verdict we're working in hopes to get a good verdict you guys realize that the gospel that it is only in the gospel of jesus christ that you get the verdict before the performance you get the verdict before you're done see we're still alive god goes ahead and gives us the verdict that we're looking for romans 8 1 says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus for those who are in christ he paid the penalty so that you could get the verdict that you're loved you're valued it's paid for you're reconciled to the father Here's the issue. Do we believe it? In Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. In other words, God can say to us, just as he once said to Christ, 
You are my son or daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's his word over us through the cross. But do we stop long enough to hear it? Do we remember? Are we remembering? Are we aware enough to keep taking it back to the cross and beginning to be transformed in our hearts because of it? Listen, guys, a saving faith is a sanctifying faith. I, I, I really believe that. The same way you got saved is the same way you're going to keep growing. You keep going back to that cross and your need of it and remembering, oh, I don't have to play this game. I'm already received. I don't have to get puffed up with how good I'm doing. I don't have to be deflated from how bad I'm doing. I'm just loved by Jesus. He paid the penalty. It's his perfect work. I get his perfect performance, and I'm so happy about that now that everybody feels it in the way I live. I'm free, and it changes us. Every time we remember, every time we remember, every time we remember, it registers a little deeper in our hearts, and sanctification occurs as we learn to lay things down. So then, guys, when our sin comes, we get to say, oh, we mourn for a moment. Oh, my sin, it hurts. But then the cross, oh, Jesus and the cross, thank you. We roll that sin over on him and we receive his love and we're filled, not puffed up, filled. So that's my word this morning, remember, remember, remember. Do what Paul tells the Corinthians to do. To remember there was a final verdict paid for on the cross. We never outrun our sins, and this is not about sin management. It's about being loved by God. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've accomplished through your Son on the cross. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would come and speak to us and set us free, and that we would remember to come back to you, to come back to come back to that work. Lord, we love you this morning and we praise you and it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.